Welcome to the Rogue Journal Club, where we tear studies apart so you don't have to. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shio Sophia production, featuring long-form discussions of peer-reviewed studies, published in academic journals, and their connections to society. I'm Adrian, And I'm Gina. We'll be your hosts. A journal club is when academics at universities get together to talk about papers. But we've gone rogue. We're going to do Journal Club our way. Join us. On this episode of the Rogue Journal Club, we engage in a discussion based on the guest commentary, Words Matter, on the debate over free speech, inclusivity, and academic excellence. The lead author is John M. Herbert, and the article appears in the Journal of Physical Chemistry Letters. I don't where, know where to start other than to say, what the flip was this about? <laughs> I know this paper was like, I have, I don't even know where to start either, but um, we can start with the title that actually says a lot. It's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, <laughs> revealing and clear title. I'll give them that. They definitely didn't mince words in what they were talking about. So. No, they did not. And this is a, this is a very, very recent article because it was just published. So we get to do something somewhat breaking news-esque here on the Rogue Journal Club. <laughs> Which is mm-hmm. gonna be nice yeah, it didn't like- even... It didn't even hit Shio Sophia uh, proper yet. This is like, is this, you haven't done your own channel. I haven't done anything on this one yet. No, no, I've uh, been debating doing a little bit on it, but I figured if we were going to record, I might as well, might as well wait and let us both do it together. Cause I'm sure we both have some thoughts after reading this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. So it's called, it, uh, you go ahead and uh, you oh, yeah. introduce yeah, yeah. it. Um, yeah. so it is not a, uh, the article like the last one is not a research article per se. It is a guest commentary who appears in the journal of physical chemistry letters entitled words matter on the d- debate over free speech, inclusivity, and academic excellence. <laughs> Here we go. Get strap in folks. This is going to be a uh, roller coaster. Oh yeah. So this paper is in the Journal of Physical Chemistry Letters, which is a technical journal for the field of physical chemistry. And it's interesting that they are publishing basically what amounts to opinion pieces. This isn't the first one because this is a response kind of sorta to another one that they printed. Um, So I think I think I I was just thinking about this because of my line of work. I, I care a lot about like rhetorical styles and things like that and so this was written like an op-ed and actually most of the references were news articles which i thought was alarming for a peer-reviewed public publication in a in a journal like this which is not not just some hack journal this is like a a technical journal that's fairly like reputable so yeah and then i also noticed that the author list is quite an all-star author list i was when you first showed this to me i thought oh this is grad students this has got to be a bunch of early careers who are just complete no these people some one of them's in the national academy of the sciences a lot of them are at university of california berkeley which isn't surprising given the (laughs) subject matter um 
but there's somebody on here from MIT and they're all like mid to late career. Well, there's only one. One of, the, um, one of the authors is a program director for NSF, National Science Foundation. I saw, yeah, that was also a surprise. Um, although not really given the subject matter and NSF's uh, direction that they tend to go with the Current recruiting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I've even talked on another episode of this show, I think about my experience being on an NSF um, REU review panel yeah. uh, or not review panel, but I was on a select committee for an REU. I took my advisor's place because she was not able to come. So I represented her and that, that was eye-opening. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's one early career and she's even not that early career. So yeah. the reason why I think this matters is that these are people that are active scientists that are publishing and do good science from what I can tell. Um, I looked at some of their publication records and they definitely do some serious science. These are not people whose careers are failing by any stretch of the imagination. So it was a little surprising to see such amateur writing from mm. my, my training, just thinking that if an undergrad had put this kind of thing together with so many news articles as citations and uh, so much um, internal contradictions and flimsy arguments and just it, it was very like the writing itself was very good smooth sounded good and everything but the quality of the argument and all of that those things about writing were like a bad undergrad paper that I would definitely have read ink the shit out of this thing for like you didn't substantiate this point here this is a non sequitur you contradicted yourself here and here like i went i i marked it up and then i was like i don't even know where to begin on responding to this it's uh one of the things that um uh pseudosciences uh sorry can't even talk pseudoscientists people who are trying to hijack the scientific process to promote crazy ideas that are uh, that they don't approach properly cuz i'm okay with crazy ideas don't get me wrong but um they do something called a gish gallop, which is like just to flood your brain with so many like wrong things that it would take like 15 books to properly unpack it all. And then you try and then they just write 15 more articles just like that. And you're just like, I give up. I can't, I can't take all of this on. It would take so much work. So, uh, and then it makes it actually really hard to make these kinds of things teachable moments for people who are trying to learn good scientific reasoning. So yes, yeah. that was my, my impression of it. When I was reading it, my blood pressure was going up and I was like, should we really talk about this? Is this going to be healthy for me? But I think it's necessary it and I've necessary. managed my emotions about it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, mm -hmm. I read it too. And a number of, a number of colleagues I have shared it with, have read it or number of colleagues I have talked about with it and, and, um, all of them have pretty much had the same reaction, which amounted to what the fuck <laughs> are you doing? I know actually even I, I was showing this to uh, my family members here and uh, my mother, she's like a stepmother-in-law. So she said, what on earth is decolonizing the undergraduate chemistry curriculum <laughs> with this face? She was like, what is this? And I remember looking at her and being like, you don't really, you don't want to know, but, but it's bullshit. So good job detecting that. <laughs> like, <laughs> and you know, I'm going to say a lot of the times when you disagree with papers like this, people are like, well, you're just in denial and you're really a horrible racist and you don't want 
diverse people to be in your career path. I'm just going to defend myself right up front and say, actually, that is wholly false. I just disagree with this as the approach to yeah. get there. So that's what I want to focus on is not that I think there's no such thing as discrimination and that there's no such thing as racism and that everything's fine and we don't have to change a thing and hooray for white men or whatever. That is not what I'm saying. I, I actually just strongly disagree with this approach. Oh yeah. Um, so yeah, just going to say yeah. that. <laughs> there's, well, I mean, it's, it's always concerning because I think at some point during this article, they, they put, um, free speech in quotes, <laughs> which I'm sorry, if you're putting free speech in quotes, I kind of have a problem with that. Um, but yeah. And I, I mean, I found some similar things. Yeah. That's a interesting contradictions, but also in, in places, some things that, that are said that are just outright false, that are just outright false. Yeah. Because I, and I think, I think one of the things we should do right here is uh, for one thing, I agree with you. This is not about, yeah. This is not about not wanting diverse diverse backgrounds and anything like that in science. It's not about that. This is about the fact that this article pretty much seems to be okay with the idea of censoring people for their opinions if it's not inclusive. Mm -hmm. That's what I got out of it when I read it myself. It was like that's and that's what a lot of my colleagues got out of it when reading it. It's like, what the f are you doing? <laughs> what yeah. makes that a good idea? <laughs> and you know, for the people who are listening or watching or both. Um, you can get this paper. I'm pretty sure it's open access, right? It is an open so, access paper. And I will say for our listeners and viewers, um, I always include a link to the articles we discuss in our show notes. So you can, yeah, uh, and don't it's, answer if you're watching on YouTube in the description. And it's not one of those scientific papers that's like uh, full of jargon and impossible to understand. So if you're not an active researcher and you're not used to reading you know, these kinds of things. You don't even have to be a chemist. I am not a chemist. So, and I was perfectly capable of understanding this paper. So I recommend for this episode to go get the paper and read it. So, you know, what we're talking about. Cause I even gave, I showed my in-laws this and neither of them are researchers and far from it, but they're interested in science and they were able to she was able to pick out actually a lot of the fallacies in this without, she was, she was like right on. I was like, yeah, see, you don't have to be any kind of like PhD to figure out what's wrong with some of these arguments. So exactly. And I so. want to say, um, for, for background, for our viewers and listeners, um, if you've been on the Shia Sophia YouTube channel, you know, I talked about an article called the peril of politicizing science by professor Anna Kralov. Um, she wrote that article for the same journal where this is this article that we're responding well not responding to but um talking about today um is uh, is also present the journal of physical chemistry letters professor kralov is a chemist herself an excellent one from what i can tell um <clears throat> and what i um what i noticed followed after that and particularly reading some of the references here and what have you is there was a lot of responses that came up to professor kralov's writings and she is very much a defender of academic freedom and freedom of speech, having had some of the experiences she had. I won't, no, I'm not going to go into the peril of politicizing science right now. There's a whole YouTube video on that. So you're, you're welcome to go back and look at that. But I think it's an important background to understand is that this article is the latest in a series of back and forth um, 
articles and and probably and to my mind one of the most egregious ones that i've seen um yeah there were definitely you know goodness knows what else i think one thing that was good about this paper is that it 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 was a little more blunt in stating what it is the diversity folks want and so that actually is good because that gives us something to actually discuss mm. a lot of the times you read these op-eds and they're so airy fairy and vague and there's some of that in here don't get me wrong this paper had its fair share of that but there were actually some points and one of them was what they are after for careers was that they would like the racial um categories to be at a percentage that's comparable to that of the united states it was always unclear to me what they meant by diversity so yeah. now i know what they mean so it was this uh faculty hiring we note with dismay that hiring of black faculty at colleges and universities in the united states has actually decreased in recent years at the current rate the percentage of black faculty will not reach parity with the percentage of black americans within our lifetimes so it that that sentence indicates to me that they're after um uh, a distribution of races that is proportional to the the distribution of races in the country yeah so that's interesting considering that science is international and i don't so yeah. it's at american universities they want to make sure that the hiring is uh i do believe these are all american scientists who've written this although i have not looked sure. for my usual thing i don't tend to look at affiliation yeah. what have you um so the yeah i think it's all american scientists you're right so i guess i can gather from that that what they would like to see is for american academic institutions uh faculty pools to be representative of the population of the country. So if we have 13% black people in the country, then there should be 13% of faculty mm -hmm. uh, across, uh, not just across all disciplines, but in each discipline right. needs to be 13% black people. So yeah. that's what I'm gathering they want. And that is actually a very concrete goal. I think it's um, not going to happen. <laughs> it seems uh, like you couldn't there'd be a lot of problems with trying to make that happen because it's too idealistic, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and they may hate me for saying that, but I think I could outline in uh, writing probably why I think that. I'm not actually as good at, at making those kinds of arguments in, in vocally, <laughs> but I think it's, a, it's idealistic, but at least that's a goal now that we can discuss that, so. Yeah. 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 Um yeah, and and you know, I I I one thing I want to say on that is, you make a good point that science is a global thing, not just a U.S. based thing, not just a Europe based thing or an Africa based thing. I mean, it is really truly a global enterprise and one of the most human enterprises in the world. Not Western as much as as much as postmodernists would want to believe us and want us to believe that. It is very human. Mm -hmm. Look at the origins of the scientific method. It comes from all across the ancient world, <laughs> really. Um, yeah. In, in the past, there. so it's like I would actually really love them, love it for them to talk about these things with respect to you know globally. What is it? You know what are what are the representations from different disciplines? And then when you're talking about it globally, what do you mean by equal representation? Yeah. What do you mean? Do you mean you know percentage of scientists should from one group should equal the 
percentage of that group that exists in the total world population? Yeah, I mean, in that case, I think most of the people on the planet are some shade of brown. So whatever, you know, <laughs> that... <laughs> I, and that may even be the case, like uh, science in India is done largely by people who are Indian. And there's a lot of people from the Arabic world that are scientists. And, you know, anyway, I feel like in this climate, you can't even like say sentences like that without feeling like, oh my God, did I just sound like a horrible bigot? Like the fact no, that I'm stating that- What you just yeah. said is an observation. Yeah, I mean, okay, Indian- people are Indian. Like, is that, I know that sometimes that can even sound ham handed, but it's true. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, no. And, but anybody should go into science that wants to go into science. Yep. <laughs> and that's pretty much what it is. And it doesn't matter where they're from or what they're doing or what have you, because science is a global sport for lack of a better word right now. So. Yeah. And that. It, it, that's what, that's its strength. So yep. that's why I'm, not, I'm absolutely in favor of increasing all kinds of types of diversity in science because it does make it better. Mm -hmm. um, different perspectives, yeah. more in so than an abstract. Yeah, um, because this article has no abstract. <laughs> yeah, it's written like an op-ed. Like this could have been in a news, like in Quillette or well, not in Quillette, but in whatever their equivalent. In, like a like a. Anyway, I'll shut up now. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let us, uh, I, yeah, I was going to say, in sort of an abstract, um, maybe reading the, the introductory section um, is probably a good idea. So <clears throat> what do we value as an academic and a scientific community? Do our core values include only the pursuit of facts and inventions to the exclusion of other considerations? Or do we accept that scientists have a responsibility to serve society beyond simply expanding the knowledge base and should therefore concern themselves, at least in part, with how their words and actions intersect and impact the human sphere? A scientist's innovations might be profound, benefiting many, but if that person's words or actions create an alienating or hostile workplace or learning environment, then how should the scientific community evaluate that person's overall contribution to humanity? How should society view such a person? These questions lie at the heart of an emerging conversation regarding what equality means for the greater scientific enterprise as we pursue increased diversity and inclusion of underrepresented groups at our universities. The same questions are also central to recent debate regarding whether the scientific community should continue to retain named scientific phenomena in cases where the eponymous scientist, eponymous rather, scientist has engaged in conduct that is inconsistent with contemporary values, even if that behavior is entirely separate from their scientific discoveries. Whether namesake buildings, lectures, and awards should be renamed is also under discussion. And similar questions regarding a controversial personal essay that was retracted in 2020 by the journal Agavanti Kemi, the, this conversation is interwoven with the emergence of historically marginalized voices within society, particularly on social media, along with the emergence and evolution of cancel culture as a new narrative. Efforts to call out inappropriate speech or behavior can lead to profound, uh, can lead to legal, professional, or social consequences for those accused. To some, this represents cancel culture run amok. To critics, social media callouts inhibit open debate and thereby threaten traditional academic freedom 
to express unpopular views. In this guest commentary, we suggest that the aforementioned efforts by universities and scientific journals, which are aimed at promoting inclusivities, inclusivity rather, are nothing at all like the actions of a totalitarian government, as some have suggested. Diversity efforts, especially those targeting faculty hiring, have sometimes been mischaracterized as exercises in critical race theory, but this is equally hyperbolic in our view. The question that we address is whether inclusivity efforts generally constitute unreasonable censorship and political correctness, or whether they are instead manifestations of a long overdue reckoning about values. Below, we elaborate using several case studies before turning to broader questions related to the pursuit of diversity, equity, and inclusion as part of a path toward excellence at our universities and within our scientific community. Yeah, that that's a might as well be the abstract because that's that pretty much summarizes the views. And then they talk about a couple things. They talk about free speech versus cancel culture, revisiting some flashpoints. And they talk about a couple of um, things that happened that made people on social media mad. There was a paper that was published in this same journal that mm. talked about students not wanting to work hard and some other things. And no, then it wasn't, it wasn't in this journal. It was in the Aguanti Kemi. Oh, that. that's right. Yeah, you're right. I was, I'm wrong. We looked that paper up by the way, and we read some of it. And I, I do think that he made some poor word choices in some of the ways that he talked about stuff. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, they talked about uh, unnaming buildings and unnaming phenomena. So they really, the DEI people really have a, a strong fixation on like the names of buildings, awards, professorships, uh, and like, I guess, phenomena too. Mm -hmm. The, like naming things after people, they're really worried about like renaming stuff to make like the words okay, which is consistent with what we who have studied this worldview understand about, you know, the, the primacy of language and all that stuff. So, um, and, and then they, they reference a lot of stuff from social media, which annoys me because I'm thinking like, why are we referencing Twitter? Like, why are we giving Twitter this I mean, much I'm power? sorry, Twitter's not a credible reference. I, like as evidenced by the response on social media, many felt these remarks deserve no place in a scholarly journal and that removing the essay was appropriate in view of its content. And I, I first, I want let to me, know let me, let me be why, perfectly blunt as much as people disliked what he said, that was utterly inappropriate as a response. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I think what, what jumped out to me on, on this uh, sentence was, if a student submitted something to me and they they said their evidence was people said this on social media and many felt like there is nothing here that this, I can go is, off of. <laughs> this is a point to make that they ignore it and maybe they ignore it because they don't think about the fact of how easy it is to do this on social media. But it is very easy, particularly with Twitter, to make multiple burners of something make multiple burner accounts and send out the same tweet over and over and over again, one person can control hundreds of Twitter accounts. So it's not really representative of what people actually think to try and do your polling mm. via social media. Yeah, and they didn't even reference anything specific about it either. It, 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 it was just basically what I always tell the writing students or it's a weasel phrase, like weasel words where they say many felt like, well, who, many <laughs> who felt? said how that? many, who said it, where, you know, what, you know, were they actual chemists or were they not? 
Yeah. Were they just angry trolls? Were they colleagues? Like, you don't know. I do better people. Oh yeah. And then they, I mean, they, oh, I, they I, also, cited... I also want to make the point because it's something a few of my colleagues have made a point about is that they said here that the research, that the paper was retracted. That is not true. That is not what happened. It disappeared in the dead of night. And then the journal submitted it with a notice of withdrawal and withdrawal and retractions are two different things. <laughs> so, and, and right, because right. even their own reference here says it's a withdrawal, not a retraction. So I don't know what, why they didn't write that right in the paper um, <laughs> to begin with. And it's like, they also ignored what happened after that with the, with the different, well, I mean, they didn't entirely ignore it as the, I mean, they, they do talk about the, uh, the, the resignation of the resignation of the advisory board of the journal. Yeah. The resignation from its international advisory board. Um, although I, I think that might've been an outcry against the article, not what happened after that. It was all the, who were all the editors who got the article published and through the system eventually either resigned or were fired in shame over this whole outcry yeah. so that got ignored yep so i yeah i mean all this stuff is a mess and i think it's just to me this paper is very weak because it they they it's circular referencing oh, yeah. they're kind of they're arguing for their position and then citing their own people like their own not even their own people but they're just citing other people who also agree with them mm -hmm. which is not necessarily valid as a strategy on its own no. there would have to be a lot more to that but what do, i what mean do you think be, if this group of, of people or... yeah yeah please continue i'm sorry i was just gonna say this group of people tends to also think that rationality is white so if that's sometimes a first principle that, w that it all falls apart upon anyway for me to ask them to give a reasoned debate based on data and formal logic and rationality and philosophy of science that makes me a white supremacist somehow for just saying that which maybe this is not as extreme but i sensed some essence of that in this <laughs> there was it was wafting so. you don't have a way to know that we obviously can't say that for sure because no we don't know enough about what's going on so this that's a speculation on our part yeah um, actually that's not fair of me to say because actually later in the thing they did actually say they welcome reason debate so I actually really hope that they welcome reason debate. Um, I hope so on this topic. I also question what do you mean by reason debate? <laughs> because yeah, the changing definition of words is a problem here. It does matter for sure. Um, I think. Well, I'll read their final paragraph because this is what they're 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 passing the torch to the scientific community to respond. Um, so we ask those who argue in favor of unbridled free speech to appreciate that science, politics, and prejudices are never really disconnected. Reasoned debate over how the politics and social discourse of this moment should influence our work is healthy and valuable, but we must talk to each other, not over each other, in order to make progress. We advocate for speech that empowers the next generation of scientists to create more just and equitable and hence more excellent scientific uh, and a more just and equitable and hence more excellent scientific community. So hey, that is what they're, yes. I had a question reading that statement, not for you, but for the authors. Ah. How do you know, for one thing, what do you mean by just and what do you mean by equitable? Um, and how do you know that having more of both will make the community more excellent? Yeah, that's definitely a, a point of disagreement. I think that is one of the main premises that we have to discuss is like, 
just yeah all of what you just said i can't i can't really paraphrase it any differently but um yeah for but, real i don't know what i don't know what that means i don't know what what they what they mean by excellent either do they mean better research papers do they mean uh higher grades do they mean more degrees awarded these awards there's a lot of vague weasel words in here yeah a lot um and so i guess oh and they talk about undergraduate admissions and faculty hiring so so they're sticking points we will summarize so adrian read the beginning so they're talking about people who are mean on the internet getting mad at stuff that they don't they don't agree with they're talking about unnaming the buildings the professorships the awards the phenomena they talk about Twitter mobs and call outs, and they talk about uh, faculty hiring and undergraduate admissions. So one of the things I noticed from this, specifically their early sentence about making a hostile workplace or a learn hostile learning environment. Yeah. So I thought about this. So a few hundred years ago, when not that many people were scientists, and it was like, they just wrote letters to each other and there weren't even really scientific journals yet, but it, maybe there was one or two. Uh, scientists were doing their own work and the point of it was to further the knowledge base. That was the point. And by doing that, that was believed to be a, a, an apparatus that makes society better. Yeah. So the fact that it's an either or proposition with this group is already troubling to me because it's like, you can make the world better and you can pursue. Um, well, I mean, it's like what we talk about in the last episode with actionable science, right? Yeah. So it, that's more of this. Yeah. And so my thought was, of, if it's in the vein of you're answering questions for society, but you're still after the truth, you can easily do both. It doesn't have to be, a, exactly. it doesn't have to be a false dichotomy of either or like that. Yep, exactly. So that, so continuing from that, the focus on research as a training program for students is is a is a shift in priorities. Yeah. And I think on some level that's good because we want to train scientists and make you know grow grow the field and things like that, but I am not um a proponent these days of pushing every smart student that I meet to become a researcher. I think that it's still a career path and a lifestyle that is for far fewer people than who are attempting it right now. And it doesn't mean that you're stupid. There's plenty of other things you can do if you're smart. I think research in particular is just a very weird life path that we've talked about this on the show before. And the idea that like science is somehow this apparatus for student training and a workplace is new. I think that is definitely something that's maybe only 30 years old culturally. And I think if you treat it like a student program before an academic enterprise, then I think you end up with a lot lower quality research because you have more beginners that are trying to do the science and it slows things down. And that makes me sound like a big mean jerk because I'm supposed to be about education and Yes, you can get educated and be and know lots of smart things. You don't have to be a scientist. <laughs> so it's uh, so that's that's one thing that stuck out to me is like, why are we assuming that this is all about student training and and getting people jobs? This is that's not what academia is supposed to be for. It's too yeah. weird for that. It's it's much too strange of a life path. It's like being a rock star. Almost nobody can really do it. it it's and 
you know, that's why the jobs and the funding are so competitive because there's way too many people that are very qualified and it's hard to pick. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I think that the entitlement over having, um, like it, it, the attitude that I read in a lot of these papers and essays and things that are about this topic is that we are like, everyone's entitled to have a, a research position if they want one. And that is not the case. I'm against that idea. And I, I personally didn't think I had what it took to be a researcher and I voluntarily ducked out, even though I really like science. So I'm not even, I, I feel like I'm not even being a hypocrite when I say this. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're not being a hypocrite at all. I and I, I agree with you, particularly now having been, you know, PhD scientist now for closing in on six years, or or longer at it if you count count the amount of time in grad school. You know, it's it's not for everybody. It is absolutely not yeah. for everybody, and it's really really fascinating. Oh, um, and, and I I I agree with you. We should absolutely not be pushing people to go into science you know get yeah and i think that's true for get them interested if they really enjoy research absolutely then help them if they want to go you know help teach them help them learn the basics help them grow um Mm -hmm. sometimes of course when you're in the middle of a program middle of being a researcher you're going to find oh this really actually sucks and i don't like it and that shouldn't be a problem um but yeah it's just it's a mess (laughs) it's such a mess article i think that i think there's a the one of the core problems i think that causes some of these like so if your worldview is that like everybody needs these prestigious high-paying jobs so they have a path to power and that they can have a say in how society is and all that stuff so that's probably why they push for representation among ceos and physics researchers as opposed to construction workers and and oil drillers right like you don't see no, and Maybe. I mean that would be the question because if you if you look at nursing, for instance, that is a profession primarily dominated by women. But mm. if you look at construction workers, that's a profession primarily dominated by men. So if you were looking at yeah. proportional representation, are you suddenly going to make a bunch of nurses become construction workers and vice versa? Yeah, and that's that's so what this is what I think, which is I think there has not been sufficient effort put into understanding why there are group differences in career choice. If Mm -hmm. you really care about that kind of thing, which I think it's kind of silly to obsess over this because to me, we should let people choose the stuff they want to do and not tell them, well, the reason why you didn't choose that is because of this thing that you're not aware of. And like, you know, are we, you know, do we not have enough male or do we not have enough female geologists because actually women don't choose geology because they hear somehow that there's mean sexist rapists and that do geology and they don't want, maybe they're just not interested in that. Maybe they are, there's aspects of it that are not attractive to them. Yeah. We don't know. I don't think so. Admittedly, admittedly, I mean, admittedly the culture of research isn't necessarily conducive if you're trying to go into getting a family or something like that. Absolutely. That things, but, um, and and that would be one of the reasons. Yeah. There are those kinds of things in culture in academia that could change. I would not necessarily be against that. Like I've got a problem with the publisher parish mentality because it obviously leads to some crappy stuff being published. Yeah. 
Yeah, where you take like one big experiment and chop it up into five papers when yeah. it could have just been one really good paper. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's it quantity over quality is a bad thing. And unfortunately, the publisher Paris mentality in academia really does cause that. So there's mm -hmm. lots of cultural things that could change, very much so. But at the same time, it's not it's not there's a lot of thinking that the singular there's a singular reason why people don't go into something but that's not true because society mm -hmm. is so damn complex i mean yeah like, I, yeah and i i think quite obviously that's more than one reason for a lot of these group disparities but people don't realize that um, yeah i think, I think that is kind of the it was the gender oh the gender equality paradox or something like that it was a study and admittedly and you know there's been some critiques of it so i'm, I'm going to put that out there but there was a study done that looked at the um or the rates of women going into stem fields and what they found was quite the opposite of what they thought they would find they thought they would find that the societies that were promoting women going into stem fields would have more women going into stem fields but what happened was what they found in that particular study was the opposite that women who didn't have as much choice they tried harder to get into stem fields and more of them did go into stem fields in some of these countries with less egalitarian policies um whereas the opposite thing happened in more democratic societies with more egalitarian policies and they mm -hmm. speculated it was because well you got more choice to do things yeah. you got more choice to do things and maybe you don't want to be a scientist and I, you know what that's totally fine with me that's the thing is i'm like you want to be a scientist? Awesome. You don't want to be a scientist? Awesome. I, I don't want to force you into yeah. doing something you don't want to do. Yeah, it's it's very, I think if you have the kind of worldview where your work is everything that you are, um, then you would feel entitled to having a job like a researcher or a CEO because you have been in the academic bubble too long or mm -hmm. your parents maybe pushed you to think that this is what you needed to do to have meaning in your life or to be worth something or to be somebody and that I think is a, a bigger problem to solve and honestly like you said there's so many reasons why people choose the careers they choose mm -hmm. that I think striving for this perfect proportional distribution of races in every single scientific discipline and subdiscipline is probably impossible simply because of how many variables go into what people choose to do with their lives like and yeah if there's trends where you see like you know if you're concerned about what african americans are doing with their lives like first of all why is that any of your business can you just leave them alone to make the choices that they want to make but anyway that's my own opinion <laughs> um if you happen to see particular career paths that more african Americans are doing or career paths that very few of them are doing, you can ask why in an agnostic way, not assuming discrimination, you may find that some of the causes discrimination, you may find some of the causes family culture, you may find some of the cause is preparation in the pipeline earlier, you may find it's just not interesting to some people, and 20,000 other things that I can't list. So uh, I think that goal is too idealistic and is only going to get it's only going to stress the system even further than okay. it already is so in, yeah. in, in, inadvertently making it probably worse for people who are trying to break into the field who may not have the preparation in their family history to do something like that even if they wanted to so yeah um, but i wrote about this on quillette uh, that diversity in STEM, why you can never go home again. It was like the one op-ed I've ever gotten published anywhere. Um, <laughs> 
that pretty much outlines all these views. So if you want to know in a much more eloquent way what I think of all of those diversity recruitment efforts, you can go read that. Um, but basically, yeah, so I think the faculty hiring and undergraduate quota thing, even though they didn't say the word quota, this I don't know what they actually want to do. They did actually talk about blind review being effective, but they cited a news article about it, not an actual study. So I'm not really sure. Blind yeah. review is a good idea. Why yeah, can't we do more be, of that? Be completely blind review. I actually, yeah, they cited an, uh, while. yeah, that's a critique that I've had for a while. Peer review should be utterly blind. You should yeah. not be able to see anything about the person who has written the article. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was one point I wanted to look up because I made a note about it a while ago. Mm -hmm. um, oh, where is it? They write. Oh, yeah, here it is. Uh, it's at the bottom of the second column on the first page is where it starts. Okay. Uh, to defend Hoodlicky's essay on the ground that there should be no limits on, quote, free speech, which again, it's freaky that they put it in quotes without considering the implications of that speech is to pretend that words have no consequence. Mm, Editors yeah. are responsible for ensuring that the contributions to their journals advance the scientific enterprise and as such are inherently arbiters of speech and ideas. Uh, we accept this gatekeeping every time we submit a manuscript. All right. Did you catch the straw man in that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I caught that because no one ever said words don't have consequences. <laughs> exactly. Nobody who's ever said that they want free speech and people to be able to speak their minds has said that those words don't have consequences. I mean, it's it's a stupid straw man argument. I'm sorry if we yeah. got annoyed with it, but I'm just like there was a, I wanted to make sure we pointed out at least one of the logical fallacies and inconsistencies of how they're not representing the opposite argument very well. Um yeah. Yeah, that was very frustrating because I felt like I would go off on an entire tangent trying to explain mm -hmm. why why we accept the consequences of speech mm -hmm. because of the alternatives that are much worse if we yeah. try to control and protect everybody from speech. That's like there's been books upon books written about this and other people who are smarter than me have made better arguments against this than I could on a podcast. Yeah. So go read other, those. <laughs> yeah. And now the other thing that I'm thinking about is like the editors are responsible for ensuring that contributions to their journals advance the scientific enterprise and as such are inherently arbiters of ideas and speech. You're inherently arbiters of ideas and speech. Wait. So if yeah, it's an I opinion don't, you don't like, it's the editor's job to take it apart? I don't think we're arbiters of, of ideas and speech. The no. process is. not No individual is. Yeah, it, no it's individual a, it's, is supposed yeah. to be. This is stuff that's supposed to be caught by peer review if it is a fundamentally flawed idea. If it's mm -hmm. an opinion that needs a little bit more flushing out, yeah, you could send a paperback for revisions or something like mm -hmm. that. But, but to say you're an arbiter of ideas and speech no editors are not the gatekeepers for what is true and to start edit and to start giving editors that responsibility to say their mm. their job is to make sure this is morally correct and true yeah it's not their job their job is to make sure the process was followed that the research if it's a research paper it was 
done in an unbiased manner as much as possible. Um, or, you know, critiquing the opinion to make sure it has strong arguments, which I, you know, I kind of question the editor of this journal if they didn't really critique this enough to notice that we pulled out some logical fallacies like that straw man just now. Yeah, I found another really good one, but we're it's not on the topic we're currently on, but remind me uh, oh, yeah, when yeah, we yeah. get to it. But um, I mean, if we're going through and finding logical fallacies, we can just have fun with that. But <laughs> Yeah, that would be like a word search puzzle. I could just you know, go through. <laughs> I don't know. If the, if the authors ever hear this show, I'm like, here's what I would say to you guys. You'll have the, the scientific careers that I would dream to have. And you should read some philosophy of science because there's some problems here that could have been fixed by reading just one book on that. That's all I'm saying. I know I sound like a jerk, but it's no, true. No, no, no. I Sorry. think you're right because the, I, I think you're right because I've said it before. It's like I was never taught that in my grad school career. I was never taught philosophy yeah. of science. I read up on it Me after that. And now I'm looking at a lot of the stuff like this and I'm like, you wouldn't be saying this if you had a little bit of understanding. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm okay. I'm going to be a little more charitable. Let it, let us suppose maybe for a moment they have read these things and have a different understanding about what it means because sometimes philosophy yeah. is a little open to interpretation. <laughs> oh, of course it is. I think the main thing I'm saying is that um, there are norms of science that are non-negotiable or should be non-negotiable. So if you want to kill cancer, you could kill the person but then you would also kill the person and then you would have no person so i see this as like you could you could kill a lot of the problems with science but you will also kill science in the process yeah so it's almost kind of like it's it's self-defeating mm -hmm. and i sometimes worry that that's the actual goal but maybe not with these authors in particular right. since they're scientists but the the activists that initially developed these ideas i think would not be super sad if a lot of these rationality based systems went away um at least initially until they realize what life would be like without them but oh, yeah. um so i i don't blame the uh, the authors of this paper for that worldview but i do i do worry that a lot of academics don't realize what these worldviews are really saying and what the implications are for oh, yeah. rationality. Like rationality is not a tool of the white man. It's it's a tool that's quite useful for all of us, regardless of what our mm -hmm. color or gender or whatever is. So which that that what you were just describing is what critical race theory has implied many, many times. Postmodernist critical race theory, which is why it has no place in science because it cuts against the normative principle of universalism, which is one, one of the things we try and uphold in our scientific process. Yeah. <laughs> so um, speaking of critical race theory, there was, so there's two, there's two things in here that I think are worth talking about. Yes. So there's an accusation. I'm going to just list them back to back and then we can attack okay. them, I think in, in order. So there's one, um, sentence they said at the bottom of the very first column on the first page Dif diversity efforts especially those targeting faculty hiring have sometimes been mischaracterized as exercises in quote critical race theory however if you go to the next page um it is on the it's the first paragraph after he subheading two academic diversity initiatives paths forward on the second page yes 
They say critical race theory originally developed as a legal framework for understanding how institutions perpetuate discrimination has become a pejorative, et cetera, et cetera. So on one page, they say that critical race theory is totally not uh, looking at diversity in hiring or trying to figure out how to explain why this is contradictory. Well, I don't know if you can notice it, but they, they define critical race theory as a way to identify bias and discrimination in institutional frameworks. And then they say it would not be correct to call diversity efforts targeting faculty hiring critical race theory. It sounds like that's exactly what, the, what they are. Because <laughs> um, based on their definition of critical race theory, they say it's a way to identify discrimination in institutions. So it would make sense that you would apply that to faculty hiring. That sounds exactly like what you would do if you were a lawyer specializing in critical race theory. <laughs> well, not just a lawyer because in critical race theory per what is written in critical race theory and introduction by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanczyk, they actually do call for activism as a core tenant of critical race theory, hence the reason it can end up in any discipline and cause havoc. Um, so it is, they are basically saying it's not critical race theory, look over there, don't pay any attention to the people that are calling it critical race theory, and it, it, then like on the next page, basically defining exactly that. <laughs> so right. well, I, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know that they're exactly saying that because it's... Um, I was just looking for the original quote from the book because um, I have it here somewhere because a lot of people don't mm -hmm. believe me necessarily. Um, do, 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 do. Ah, yes, here it is. From Critical Race Theory and Introduction, Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanczyk write, quote, unlike some academic disciplines, critical race theory contains an activist dimension. It tries not only to understand our social situation, but to change it setting out not only to ascertain how society organizes itself along racial lines and hierarchies, but to transform it for the better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that immediately yeah. makes it less than scholarly in my view, but anyway. Um, well, yeah, because- I, I, don't know I, that, I don't know that they're necessarily contradicting themselves here because you know, one could argue there's diversity initiatives out there that are not, that are not bound up in postmodernism. Yeah, uh, a, a good example of that would be uh, Chloe Valderi's theory of enchantment. Um, is highly I haven't heard of that one. Yeah, it. I, I've. I haven't done their. I. I was kind of curious to do their. I haven't done it yet, but I want to. May eventually do their. Um, their self-guided one. Um, but it is not based mm. in postmodernist worldview, and it could be considered a DEI esque kind of training or more of a diversity training. Okay. Um. So. Interesting. They, they might be I think to weasel word that say that they were not really contradicting themselves so I'm trying to be fair on that at the same time that's true at the same time at least from anecdotal evidence the mass vast majority of those in academia are in a postmodern basis that is connected to critical theory not just critical race theory but critical theory so I think that I I think they nece um, haven't necessarily done enough background reading themselves to recognize some of the postmodernist roots of DEI initiatives, which, I mean, if they had, to, one of the things I want to point out to them is they, they talk later about implicit bias tests and all this other stuff. They don't talk about the plethora of literature that has shown that that stuff is bunk. <laughs> you know? <laughs> There's a lot of that. Yeah, I think 
most of what they cited in this article is news articles. So they yeah. didn't really look at research on their own side either, if I yeah. am totally fair. So yeah. it was like, it's like the, um, they talk about implicit biases late implicit bias testing later on or something like that. And it was, it came out in the last couple of years that the implicit bias tests effectively have no predictive power when it comes to a person's behavior. And it's like, you may have an implicit bias, but that doesn't mean you're going to act on it. In fact, the matter, that is what a liberal education and liberal, yeah. I mean, in the classical liberal sense is mm -hmm. supposed to correct, is supposed to keep you from yeah. some of those kinds of nasty things and learn a little bit more and what have you. Um, yeah. Oh, and there's one other thing I wanted to say. I talk about things not having a hostile work environment and what have you. Mm. Fine, well, and good. And going in the inclusivity. Let us pause it with the DEI postmodern sense and what have you, critical theory basis and what have you. I will be perfectly blunt and say it from my own experience now that's happened to me a few times. The only time I've ever had sexist behavior in my entire career, and I am going back to when I started undergrad as a woman in meteorology, in a meteorology program, uh, which is very male dominated at the time. Um, less so now. Um, the only time in my entire career I have ever had to deal with sexism is it's been from somebody who's been so inculcated in the DEI nonsense, hmm. the postmodernist sense DEI nonsense, that they don't realize they're telling me something extremely sexist when they're trying to mean well. I definitely learned most of the negative stereotypes about women from feminists, not from men. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, it's I'm never with been you. a man that's done anything to me. It's always been the women for some strange reason. <laughs> that's why, Adrian, that's why we're friends because we're the <laughs> discarded women of womankind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I've definitely been bullied by way more women than men in my life. Like, but yeah, more. I bring that up because, because yeah. the thing is the intolerance of worldview itself. They don't, this is the contradiction they don't realize. The intolerance of worldview itself by shutting down things and changing names and getting rid of opinions and what have you, that does create a hostile work environment. Yeah, it does. For 100%. I mean, one of the big reasons that I left academia was because there was this implication that I was supposed to put my career above everything else, including my relationship. And that's like, that was really important to me. That was a way that I was going to have the best chance at a happy life. And I do now that I have chosen him over the career. And that was a big feminist no, no, but it sucks to be you guys. I'm happy now, but it's, it, it, I mean, maybe they're all happy too. I can't really say, but I do have a lot of personal resentment because I felt, I felt alienated and I wasn't even uh, a conservative at the time i don't know if i am now or not i feel kind of weird calling myself that but um most but conservatives I was, don't call themselves conservative yeah i mean yeah. i was definitely very very left at the time like i fully bought into all of these ideas at the time mm -hmm. so uh and i felt uh, like people were not listening to what i wanted that was best for myself so all i think about now when i read these kinds of things is yeah like how many how many people out there are sitting there like, can you all stop speaking for me? Because I actually have things that I want and I feel like they're not represented in this worldview because it's very narrow. Well, so it, it, uh, this is this is why they don't, I've been thinking on this for a while. So this is going to be a little off the cuff with the DEI postmodern sense. It is a very collectivist worldview and it unfortunately mm -hmm. leads to 
the notion of thinking that every one of X group has experienced something or has experienced this thing or experiences this thing. Um, and every one of X group doesn't or every one of other X group experiences this or what have you. And it's such a, I don't know what the logical fallacy is, but it's, it's so incorrect because it's like you're overgeneralizing with people really is the only way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it leads you to making some awfully bigoted assumptions <laughs> about a person. Yeah. Met. It has the, almost the opposite effect mm -hmm. on, on your head. I think mm -hmm. Which is, definitely which is why been... a lot of the sociology research has shown that DEI doesn't work. DEI mm. in the postmodern sense doesn't work is because is in part because it makes those classifications of people based on group. And then it puts them in your head so that if you weren't thinking them before, now you are and you're like, you've, you've I wonder what the stereotypes are reinforced old stereotypes. Yeah, just like I don't know. Uh there's a video I, on by anyway, the way, there's a video even, on my YouTube channel yeah. about this, about whether or not diversity related stuff is effective. And there's a lot of this research that's mentioned in there. So we don't need to go into it in full depth, but just to <laughs> just to mention it there is yeah. on Sophia yeah. YouTube channel. But, yeah, and I don't even know that research that well, so I should check that out. Um I it's think an old oh, video. it's way back from the beginning of my channel. Were there any other thoughts you had about CRT before I move on? Because I wanted to talk about the uh, totalitarian government thing real quick, because I feel like that's also an important point they hammered on a lot, but finish yeah, no, the no, thought no. on think, CRT um, first. No, but I, I I think I'm pretty much finished it. It's the idea that from DEI and from the idea of what they're talking about is, well, we have to we have to be the gatekeepers of speech and what have you. And just like you realize that it's a very slippery slope to go down to a, being a very intolerant scientific community, and that will create hostile work environments for everybody. Yeah, particularly it's those true. of us who have a minority viewpoint. Do you not think about that? That's yeah. that's the point. This is the, things mm. like things like this, and I'm going to rant a minute. <laughs> 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 things like this, articles like this that I have seen that bother me that freaking no end is we the argument is we have to do this to be inclusive of all these historically marginalized communities okay <laughs> tell me something how are you being inclusive of diverse viewpoints by being exclusive of divergent viewpoints yeah well their answer to that is your viewpoints are wrong and you are bad exactly <laughs> But that's, yeah. that's the contradiction. They cannot be inclusive of diverse viewpoints if you're sil silencing somebody with a divergent viewpoint. Yeah, that's, no, just uh, because somebody's offended by an opinion, that is not a good enough reason to shut somebody down. Yeah, I think this is the paradox of tolerance, right? Yeah. Yeah. So then the other paradox that they talk about is the paradox of, well, they don't talk about it. I do in response to what they say is the paradox of freedom or that you could freely choose to not be free and that's true in a totalitarian state. If yeah. for some reason the people voted for someone to take away their that's, right that's to a vote. Handy, that's a handy jumping off. It's a handy transition. <laughs> but also in this case, what they're talking about is something that's kind of coming from the bottom up. Yeah. That sci the scientific community, if how ma however many of our fellow scientists share this worldview in this paper, they're effectively... Uh, using their freedom of speech to say they do not want there to be freedom of speech, which is really odd to me. And 
this has been talked about uh, among political philosophers for a very long time, centuries, probably more. <laughs> as soon as long as soon as the idea of a liberal um, democratic state the concept of that emerged in human societies, they've been talking about whether this is a good idea or not. And can people handle the freedom yeah. or will, or do they need totalitarianism to keep them safe or something like that? So this is, this has been going on since the Greeks, this debate. So anyone who thinks that raising the point that maybe free speech isn't so great, like you're not original. This has been a debate going on for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons why we have free speech. Um, the alternatives have been observed throughout history and they don't usually go very well. So that's what I go off of. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I can understand people getting aggravated when they're saying they want to shut shut down free speech. They get aggravated at being compared to, to, to totalitarian governments and regimes and what have you mm -hmm. but at the same time one has to understand there's like we we immediately think of ussr and we think of the worst things in the world that happen and it's like speaking for myself my grandmother's family mm -hmm. was murdered by the soviets my grandfather's family was murdered by the nazis i get that i understand that people go right to those comparisons but that's not where it started and in the case of, in, in 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 history it's not necessarily where it ends either because, because when like mm -hmm. totalitarian system is collapsing, they go back to the kind of soft repression, not the not the murdering of people, but the canceling of ideas and silencing of viewpoints and what have you. Um, which mm -hmm. Herbert et al. here Orwellianly refers to as consequence culture. Yeah. <laughs> Cancel culture, which is just creepy as all freaking get out. I um, think the go ahead and finish your point because yeah, I yeah, yeah, but, um but go ahead. But but that's that's the thing where I understand why people are equating it to equating the idea of shutting down speech to totalitarian repression because it started there with that kind of soft thing where mobs of people were either bought into the idea for whatever reason they freely chose and mm -hmm. said, no, we don't like this idea. We don't want to hear it anymore. So we're going to do whatever we can to shut you down. And we demand the government do this. And we demand other agencies do that or other authorities do this. You know, it doesn't start from the government. Usually it starts from people freely choosing. They don't want to be offended anymore. Yeah. So that's a question that I, I don't know the answer to, and maybe you do. Um, so maybe you can shed some light on this the sort of i guess because every country kind of that arrives at that totalitarian state uh you know in the the ussr style or nazi germany or any of you know of the modern examples in south america and things like that how they end up there and it's really hard for me i think sometimes to imagine what counts as the top and what counts as the bottom because to me a society is people yeah and there are people who maybe have government positions and there are people who have other kinds of jobs. But, you know, if something comes from the bottom up, is uh, science considered the top or the bottom? I think depending on how you see the world, Ooh. if you like, so if, to me, this is coming from not the government. It's not a top down thing. It's coming from the community itself, wanting to censor itself for some reason, which I think is, a problem on its own so like what if there was data that was really really disturbing and went against some of what we think should be true but, 
but you go through all the efforts of collecting the data and you verify through, that's terrible that I said that, you try to falsify it and you fail to falsify it after however much research and you pick apart the experimental design and you say, okay, this is actually a real signal that we have here, but it's really, really like politically unpalatable. What do we do about it? Do we ignore it or do we not ignore it? And so to me, I think ignoring it doesn't make it untrue. It doesn't change the fact that it's probably affecting reality. And so if we ignore it, then we don't solve the problem. But some people might disagree and say that if we ignore it, then it will not exist because everything that's real is just in our minds and it's based on words. So that's a fundamental difference. So if there are scientists who believe that you can ignore data and it will not be real anymore. That's bothersome to me because that's a principle that is runs completely counter to everything science is. So if you believe that, then you shouldn't be a scientist or you should at least address that inside your head as to what that really means when you say that. So so that's that. I'm going on way too long, but I'm saying- No, 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 no. It's okay. I've been ranting plenty. Yeah. Um, whenever I listen back to these episodes, I'm always like, wow, I talk too much and I take too long to make Don't a point, but <laughs> Don't worry um, about it. that's why these are long form. Um, yeah. So all of that said, you know, that's interesting. I, Cause I would, I mean, this is, this is tangent, but it, you raise an interesting point. I science itself is the process, but the profession of science, is it top or bottom in yeah, society, is it, or is it somehow some amalgamation? Yeah. Like, are you, are you and me? Okay. We're not a good example. Cause we don't want, we don't like this, but say like, you know, 10 random grad students and five professors all decide like we want to censor data because even though something turns out to be scientifically sound, we're going to, we're going, we're going to suppress it among ourselves, government, not even involved. We're just right. going to choose to suppress that information that alone should be bothersome without the need to compare it to a totalitarian state. My mm. question is, how does it connect? Is that one of the ways that the Soviet Union became the way it is? Was it from random professors and students just waking up one day and saying we needed to suppress information? Was, or is that where the red, I mean, like where was that where the red guard came from? Were those just radicalized random people that suddenly became no, government it, officials that suppressed like, so how did that happen? That's, I'm not a, I'm not a full on expert on how the evolution happened. As so I mean, we'd have to go to others for sure, but I can comment based on what I know. The point where you're getting, when you get to the point where the government is doing, well, how should I put this? Andrew Breitbart had a famous quote, um, and he said at one point that pol politics is downstream from culture um, at one point. And so basically what, he, what, what that implies is that if something's going on and something's changing in the culture, it will eventually get to the politics. And so there is some evolutions of culture and what have you, and liberalism classical liberalism by itself is all is in part about testing and trying out new ideas and challenging things and all this other kind of stuff and so it can prompt the idea of let's have that tweak of culture or something like that or maybe we should go this way instead and try it out right, right? um and if it's wrong well we go back the other way mm -hmm. that's kind of what liberalism is supposed to be but it does leave open the door for more totalitarian ideas and thoughts to get into the culture 
um, and push mm-hmm. the culture little by little, the community of people little by little to the point then where politicians have to respond. The other thing that can then happen in history is if you've got somebody who is a savvy politician who knows how to mm-hmm. manipulate culture or people with propaganda or what have you, like any number of events in history, mm-hmm. um, you start you start pushing people in that direction with little nuggets here and there, what have you. Mm-hmm. So like some of the things that have happened with Germany um, was the idea is before they got to mm-hmm. the point of, well, actually, no, even better. This happened with, with Soviet science and Lysenko. Um, Lysenko very much pushed the notion that, and it got embraced by much of Russian society was the idea that, now this is all western this is all western stuff these people are all evil they're anti-imperialist i'm sorry they're imperialist because westerners were viewed as imperialists in the soviet union you know you're politically incorrect according to their kind of thing and you know you don't like this you don't like that if you disagree Mm -hmm. kind of thing and that idea was pushed and propagated so it was the slow dehumanization of other that happened right in the culture and that othering makes it okay for the government to then come in and say we're gonna silence mm-hmm. we're going to crush dissent anything like that because they're an other and they make our people who are with us who are mm-hmm. human in our eyes feel safe yeah. so it's a safetyism thing at the same time that they want to be safe from things that offend or things that come from the other and that's kind of what I worry about in this country right now is some of the other ring, like the really far splitting apart kind of things that are happening mm-hmm. is a hell of a problem <laughs> because that's eventually going to so your politics. I think the more I think about it first, I have to correct something I said before yeah. your before your last piece was I said Red Guard and that was Maoist China, not Soviet Union. There was, there I screwed was a similar up. thing though in Maoist China. So you wouldn't have been yeah. far. Yeah. And that was a student group actually, which is interesting. Um, but anyway, I had to verify online that I had said that wrong because I was like, oops, I, that was probably inaccurate, but it, yes, so anyway, um, but what you say, the way you describe that, it sounds like it was a cultural movement before it was a government yeah. structure. So here's the next question. It, are the histories of those countries similar enough to be able to make a comparison to now because what was Russia prior to becoming the Soviet Union compared to what are we now prior to becoming whatever uh, woke uh, dystopia that conservatives oh, are afraid of? Right. Like, is the is the trajectory even comparable? Is this apples to oranges or or well, oranges I mean, to tangerines only- or? <laughs> right. Russia pre-Soviet Union was the czarist empire. Um, okay. so the czars were in charge um so basically it was a monarchy um there was a violent uprising in 1917 1918 the bolshevik revolution and that was when um lenin took charge vladimir lenin was the first leader um joseph stalin came in some year some years later um he was he was in charge by the 1940s time frame when the world war ii started um mm-hmm. so yeah it was different and admittedly there were lots of problems and that's that's the other thing from a cultural standpoint that you can capitalize on if there's a society that's really unhappy things like that it can cause it can cause chaos um 
Germany, I don't know for sure what it was pre-Nazi Germany. It seems like it was at least economically suffering. I'm they, not. Well, yeah, they not yeah. one. One of the things that did happen, as I recall in history, and please correct me if I'm wrong, people out there, I may be wrong. Um, when World War One ended and the Treaty of Versailles was signed, um, the Treaty of Versailles was not very kind or favorable to the German people, and so it did cause a lot of hardship in Germany at the time, and. I think some historians have argued that if they had changed the Treaty of Versailles and made it a little bit differently, then maybe Nazis would not have happened. But, um, of course, obviously you can't know that. You can't go back in history and fix that. But mm -hmm. um, there is that. But I don't think Nazi Germany... Germany was not a fascist country right away after World War One. It took a little while. It was like 20 or 30 years um or so and i'm just trying to remember what it was this is where we're going to do some live checking of something um do, 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 do. yeah i know we need a third person on here who's a historian because that might be what this we is need. tough yeah, <laughs> yeah this is it's tough to know these things and i think it's super important too so but you can only read so many books so fast. I'm trying to work my way through the philosophy ah, stuff yeah. first. <laughs> so, yeah, 19. So the German Empire was 1871 to 1918. And then 1918 was the end of World War One mm -hmm. um, here. And so the Weimar Republic was 1919 to 1933 in Germany. Um, okay. Yeah, the humiliating peace terms in the Treaty of Versailles provoked bitter indignation throughout Germany and seriously weakened the new democratic regime. So it was a, it was technically a democratic regime um, in there. Um, not exactly entirely. I can't tell from the Wikipedia thing here whether or not it was whether or not it was a particular thing. In December 1918, the Communist Party of Germany was founded, and 1919 it tried and failed to overthrow the new republic. Adolf Hitler in 1919 took control of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which failed a coup in Munich in 1923. Both parties, as well as parties supporting the Republic, built militant auxiliaries that engaged in increasingly violent street battles. Electoral support for both parties increased after 1929 as the Great Depression hit the economy hard, producing many unemployed men who became available for paramilitary units. The Nazis, formerly the German Workers' Party, um, with a mostly rural and lower middle class base overthrew the Weimar regime and ruled Germany from 1933 to 1945. Hmm. Um, yeah, so basically, basically a lot of what happened that ended up destroying the Weimar Republic was the, um, with a crash in Wall Street combined with the fact that the Treaty of Versailles was not very friendly to the German people to begin with, um, so, but but one mm -hmm. of the things that did happen during the Weimar Republic is that the Weimar years, there was a lot of great science being produced. There was a lot of Nobel sciences that went Nobel Science Awards that went to to uh, German German scientists. Um, yeah, dominated Hermann von Helmholtz, um, for example, Max Planck, Werner Heisenberg, and Werner Heisenberg rather. Chemistry, likewise, you had you had. Um, great chemistry companies like BASF and Bayer were founded at the time. Sure. Uh, mathematicians, George Cantor, David Hilbert, Carl Benz, the inventor of the automobile, 
um, Rudolf Diesel in engineering, Wernher von Braun, rather, rocket engineer, um, Cohn, Koch, and Virchow, microbiology. Some of the some of the best in the world um, at the time were in the Weimar Republic. But um, as one of the things that is a problem with totalitarian regimes is it usually does result in huge backwards, huge regression in scientific progress in a country that embraces it. Yeah. So it sounds like it's murky to figure out if Germany was a social movement first or a government movement. But really, if you if you say this, I'm been kind very, of going... It might have been a very fast um, social movement in Germany because it was literally over like 20 years. 20 years tops because it was what, 1919 mm-hmm. to 1933? Yeah. What we're talking about. So it was very quick. And part of the reason it was very quick was because of the chaos at the end of World War II and uh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. the end of World War One with the Treaty of Versailles, coupled with the collapse of the economy that happened with the Great Depression globally, you yeah. know, it made a lot of social unrest and it made people prime yeah. some of these kinds of things. I think what's I'm I'm somewhat going a little bit back on an, on a viewpoint that I had originally, which was that you can't compare this stuff at all to a totalitarian state. Uh, except maybe in some like loose similarities in thought, but I do actually wonder if that's an error because I think all societies and states and and countries and structure just societal structures of all kinds, from monarchies to republics and everything and everything on the list, um, is they're all made of people. And so how the people feel about a certain situation, what ideas take hold in groups, sometimes a particular extreme ideology can take hold and get a lot of traction, which is what happened with the Nazis um, and probably a lot of other examples that I don't know about because I'm not a historian. But I think maybe there are some similarities we can draw that I was not willing to accept before because you know, maybe these do, these things do start, um, always grassroots because that's how everything starts, including society itself. So I guess, um, the one thing I'm still skeptical of is whether we here in the United States need to actually be worried about losing free speech. Uh, I think the, the, um, the mountain that would have to be climbed, (laughs) um, we've set the, the, the system up in such a way that, it makes it very, very hard for a niche ideology to really do that much damage. And I think that's what I don't necessarily I, agree with that sentiment. And that I think how would we lose free speech? Doesn't it take quite a lot of states to agree to ratify the constitution or to amend the constitution? Well, like a, yes, like a lot. <laughs> you're you're thinking about the very top part of it with the constitution but what this article is more after and what some of the concerns are more after and the idea of the culture is if the culture changes where it becomes wrong to offend anybody Mm -hmm. suddenly you can't talk freely but you've never changed the constitution so you mean it's going to be always more at the culture level just the way the mood of society will always be will the mood that of will society always, will, that will always be that way, but not it, always, yeah, yeah. But if it comes to an end, you're, you're it's more going to cons- be. It's going to be from from the grassroots, not from necessarily trying to 
not, not necessarily from trying to amend the constitution to get rid of the first amendment. So isn't this all just speech versus other speech then? If, if we're not actually ever going to be at risk of uh, being arrested or executed for our speech, I think that's really all that that was designed to deal with. I don't think it necessarily meant that we would all be able to keep our jobs too. I think you have to be willing to put some stuff on the line for speech if there's a cultural movement that's trying to silence you yeah. and you have and you're and you have in your conviction that you know this isn't right that is something that you're allowed to do without the state coming after you and i think that's all this, and then, then i, that I don't think we'll lose that right and that is the point and i think to get to come back around to our article here because we kind of went off on a history tangent <laughs> uh, it was it was relevant i defended it was a relevant this. It history was relevant. Tangent, but yeah, yeah. yeah. um you know, with the idea of it coming from culture, I think the thing that they're concerned about, the critics of this article, and my, I think I include myself in this, are concerned about is when it becomes okay for the professional leadership, the professional governance, the governance of scientific societies and journals and things like that, when it becomes okay for the governance of that to just start silencing opinions that they dislike or that somebody's offended by or something like that, that's sort of science's own equivalent of what might happen if we got rid of the First Amendment to the Constitution, in a sense. I, I think that's the only way I can think of to describe it, that that's what the concern is, is if you push with this kind of consequence culture thing, mm. as they put it which again is mm -hmm. freaking Orwellian. Um, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, you're, you're, it doesn't pushing, mean anything. <laughs> yeah, you're pushing toward the idea of, you know, you're not going to get published. You're not going to get those publications you need for tenure if you have this kind of opinion that the professional scientist community doesn't yeah. like. And that's that's where it gets really leery. Um, and that's admittedly some of the things I'm concerned so, about. So. I, I wonder you, if that's what they're getting at a bit with some of the critiques yeah. articles like this. It's like, wait a second, I'm sure pushing for our professional societies to silence people. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely bad. And I think definitely as scientists, you sh we, we should all be speaking up about the alternative to this and explaining why this we don't agree with this because that's this this is speech and so would be yeah. uh, speaking out again like i'm in favor of all of it because i agree with you i think that's really very bad i don't i don't necessarily worry about it as much because my i imagine well yeah that'll suck for the university system i think it's already taken a big hit and i think it will continue to <laughs> suffer uh it will suffer and the university system will probably not be what it once was, but it doesn't mean that all of the knowledge that we have among ourselves as researchers in our own heads and with what, what we have at our disposal, our talents, abilities, inst institutional knowledge, like societal knowledge, I don't think that will go away. And that means that there's always going to be something else that the smart people figure out how to do to keep a lot of these things going. Who says that it has to be a university? Who says that it has to be a government lab? That's mm -hmm. just the way it is now. And well, so and it's it hard to imagine what else that would be. And it's definitely not an easy path to mm -hmm. try to find alternatives to these behemoth organizations that have, you know, I worked in laboratory biology before I did 
writing. And that's not something I could just build in my house. You need millions of millions of dollars to do some different, many kinds of research require way more money than small little groups of determined individuals would have at their disposal. But I think that that's a narrow-minded fear because where there's a will, there's a way. Um, I don't think it's going to be I don't think it would be an easy path, but I think that it's, the paths are not closed. And I think it would just, I think this DEI stuff is actually pushing innovation in ways that it probably doesn't expect <laughs> because, <laughs> um, because it's making it harder for the smart people to do what they want to do. So they're just going to go find another way to do it. Yeah. Or they're going to attempt to anyway. Um, although they'll it, move, it becomes more difficult when the funding mechanisms are get influenced by this crap too. Um, so it's just like really need to re Absolutely. That's a huge, that is an enormous, enormous bummer. Yeah. And as much as I don't like the phrase, um, because it has been co-opted so much by postmodernist stuff, um, we do need to reimagine the structure of how we fund and do scientific research in the sense of we don't like publisher Paris. We need blind peer review. And the culture of academia has gone kind of off off to the weirdest places in the world. <laughs> Speaking from experience. Yeah, there's um on that there's one. There's plenty so, of like, problems to solve. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. need to reimagine, you know, how do we fund it? Because I like the idea of potentially maybe crowdfunding research, right? You could do that, particularly with something that's really popular and society really needs anyway. You know, how many, how many five dollar donations do you get to the 50k or something like that that you need you now to do this? Yeah. Um, thing things like that. There's ways to do it. And I mean, I I honestly don't think that long-term universities and government labs are going to be the places where we do it. I just don't see it lasting. Um, I, I don't see that lasting forever. There's so many different problems with it. And it is such a bureaucratic nightmare to get anything done that sometimes I'm amazed we progress. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think, I do think, I do think that the postmodern DEI stuff is most definitely going to be pushing people away. In fact, matter I know of more than enough scientists and young scientists, some, some folks who are younger than me, who are running away. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's because a shame. Of the DEI stuff. I it's and there's parents that I talk to who are uncertain of what to tell their smart high school student. Uh, what they should do after graduation because the universities are increasingly toxic places for anybody who doesn't want to be an activist at this point. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, it's frankly pretty exhausting. I definitely think a lot about just like hiding forever in my, in my <laughs> woods and like not participating in any of this stuff because it is very depressing. Um, and it's, it's, I think I've said it in like literally every episode we've recorded that it, the biggest thing that breaks my heart is hearing so many people with PhDs and, you know, advanced training in science reject the tenets of science without even realizing it. And then even when you try to show them, even in the most kind way possible, like the contradiction they they either look at it and say, yeah, that's that's a good point, but I'm going to not agree with that anyway, or they just don't see it. And there's like nothing you can do. It feels, it feels very, um, I feel very helpless a lot personally in, in trying to explain to various colleagues and friends, like 
that's great that you want to help people have happier lives. However, this is not the way to do that. And, and how do you get them to believe you that you know what you're talking about and not just look at you and go, I wonder if that person is secretly a huge bigot and a horrible racist and actually just wants to preserve their white privilege or something like you don't know what they're actually thinking because they just sort of nod and well, it is, ign- it is ignore thing- you. Yeah, you're hitting it. You're hitting at a thinking trap that it seems to have affected an awful lot of people, regardless of where you're coming from on this. And that's the mm-hmm. the mind reading and the catastrophizing traps. You know that yeah. it's like you, you want to mind read what a person thinks about why they did something. That's a mm-hmm. lot of the problems with some of this DEI stuff, in particular, like the microaggressions literature is is full of it. You know, you, you're 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 yeah. mind reading that the intent wasn't ill or your catastrophe yeah. this is a bad thing or you for whatever reason going all the way back to what the euphemism originally meant when it was you know first used instead of what it is now because language yeah. evolves as much as it does and somehow that's thing things like that and of course the, the micro yeah. literature is so bloody flawed too um <laughs> i think it was sad to me for papers like the one we're discussing yeah was it that this paper was written by like seasoned experienced researchers and it scares me because it makes me think well if these are the people that are at the top of the field and they can't actually make um like a basic that they fall for these ideas without actually realizing what they're saying unless they really do realize exactly what they're saying and they don't want science to be rational anymore that's disturbing to me too (laughs) i I don't know which is worse actually (laughs) yeah i don't which either which either but it's admittedly i am very very nervous for the future of scientific research i am very nervous for the future for the young scientists who are coming up who are being Mm -hmm. taught that all this is okay right now you know that it's it's... okay to shut down opinions you disagree with and things like that and admittedly it's not everyone i have met a bunch of young scientists who are like this is such bs i'm not doing that (laughs) well see that's why i'm not worried is that there i think it there's always and i have no way to prove this there will never be nobody nobody's done any research in either direction so it's kind of hard i don't think yeah i don't think i don't know how i would ask this question i'd have to think about it when i'm not on the spot like this but I'm not worried because I think there's been sort of a constant rate of productive people in all of these creative open-ended intellectual paths that we're just seeing the, the, we're just seeing the failure much later in the pipeline than we used to because of all the DEI efforts to pass more people through PhD programs and get them into postdocs and professorships. And then at some point, the training wheels have to come off and all the help goes away and you're actually expected to do something. People used to fall out of the pipeline in eighth grade and find other things to do. And we wouldn't notice how many people um, would not have succeeded at being a scientist or how many people were good at school and became researchers, but fell for the DEI ideas because they were never taught how to actually do philosophy of science. And Well, yeah, and I I also think this is the thing is that as scientists, we're trained to be very much specialists. So often we rely on others. And so I just wonder if a bunch of these, a bunch of folks, not just the authors of this paper, but others, um, how much they were just, you know, went to a seminar on DEI or something like that. And and because they don't have time to look into it themselves and they're so specialized in their own thing, they didn't bother to go 
check they didn't bother to go say is this reasonable or not yeah and Um, it sounds it sounds very nice a lot of it at the outset is presented if you're not honestly if you've never been swept up by a bad idea before and got spit out the other end of it you don't notice the strategies you think it's actually this nice thing that's going to help the world be a better place and it's not it's not and i i know that my husband and i have both been spit out the ass end of bad idea cults and understand what that feels like to get swept up in that righteous indignation and to feel like you found the the solution everyone's forget everyone's been missing and you know you think this is the next thing that's going to change the world and and everyone's just trying to suppress it and you know you, it, all of the things that mm-hmm. they say are the same as all of the other yeah. bad ideas they use the same strategies but if you don't if you don't recognize the the logical fallacies and all the other problems because you've never needed to in your life you never had the experience to go off of and you're not taught about it in school because you mm-hmm. don't learn like real scientific reasoning you just learn critical thinking which is this bastardized version of scientific thinking um yeah. you don't actually have the tools to recognize what this actually is yeah. and so then you write papers like this because you really want to help the situation and it's not going to help sorry <laughs> yeah speaking so, of speaking of i i did want to get to two of the paragraphs in the last section because it i know why is this episode going to be seven hours long i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no we both have a lot to say about it and i mean this is this is one that provoked a lot of thoughts for both of us um and this has been great conversation yeah i think i'll i just love these kinds of chats but um let me see here uh it's this it's the second at last and the third to last paragraph in the article it's before the last concluding paragraph that you read earlier um Mm -hmm. rather than advocating in favor of unencumbered free speech for its own sake and devoid of consequences again straw man um we advocate for speech that promotes freedom but recognizes that words have consequences straw man nobody said that (laughs) words don't have consequences this is a problem scientists have an obligation to consider how the totality of their words and activities impacts the full range of stakeholders in the scientific enterprise colleagues trainees institutions and society It is a fallacy to assert that exceptional scientific accomplishment should be celebrated regardless of egregious individual conduct. Why? Because to do so erodes trust in science and violates broadly held principles of academic and professional ethics, social responsibility, respect for human rights, and non-discrimination. I want to start with that paragraph because why do scientists have that obligation? doesn't necessarily mean they do (laughs) i don't i mean it's like that's that's not something that's even debated here why do we have an obligation to consider how the totality of our words and activities impact um and i got i got another thing fallacy to assert that exceptional scientific accomplishment should be celebrated regardless of individual conduct what would you say then to marie curie you know the story of marie curie yeah Spontaneous for our viewers let me for our viewers and listeners let me let you know um marie curie nobel prize winning chemist one of the first women if not the first woman to win the nobel prize in chemistry um she won the nobel prize in chemistry at the time Arrhenius, who is famous in climate science land um actually he figures very prominently in the history of climate science 
he was the chair of the Nobel Committee who was giving her the award. At the time, it was very taboo to do what Marie Curie did. Her husband passed away and she got into an affair with another man pretty much immediately after her husband passed away. <laughs> it was very quick and that was very taboo culturally at the time. That was not something you could do. Nowadays, it probably wouldn't be. I mean, it might be a little weird for some people, but most people wouldn't care. But um, it prompted the scientific community, knowing that, prompted Svant Arrhenius to write Marie Curie, and Marie Curie, rather, and say to her, we don't want you to come to, because of your affair that you're having, we don't want you to come to accept the Nobel Prize in person. Stay away. Stay away. We'll ship it to you. <laughs> it was that kind of letter. And Marie Curie wrote back uh -huh. and said pretty much, no, F you, I'm getting this award for my work, not for my personal, not for my personal thing. Let us take for a moment this thing of fallacy to assert that exceptional scientific accomplishments should be celebrated regardless of individual conduct. Do you then mean that if we were to go back in time and have that conduct of Marie, Marie Curie be taboo, that we should then thusly deny her the Nobel Prize in chemistry? Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know that story. I certainly didn't. So I would be curious to know what the feminist's response to that would be, since I might, you know, what my response would be is uh, the work and the character aren't connected. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the thing. I it's think because yeah. they want to, they want to put individual conduct, which they view as egregious, which egregious could mean anything to anybody, mm -hmm. say for some broader cultural norms. Um yeah, then you're going to basically shaft scientists who are very deserving for the work they have done in their field just because they've done something you're offended by. Yeah, and I think it's one thing if you do something that's against your workplace's policies, you lose your job. Oh, yeah. um, but your work, your scientific contributions still exist. That's not something that should be connected to your person. It's the work. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that is actually one of the... Um, something that does come from, and I don't know what the right word would be for it, but that's one of the things we accept as scientists is that there's a reality that is that is disconnected from our perception, however perfectly unknowable it may be, it exists. And we always strive towards getting ever and ever better at detecting it. And that the idea is that anyone could do that, that that's why we have reproducibility uh, standards and why, you know, like why we have materials and methods sections, because we're explaining how any, literally anyone could pick up the tools and right. repeat it and get the same results. Obviously that's idealistic and doesn't really occur, but the, that's the, uh, the goal. And even though it's idealistic and doesn't really occur, it occurs well enough that we're able to solve a lot of problems with really clever solutions because we believe this. Like, so yeah. there is an advantage that's concrete and measurable that you that you have by, by believing this. So rewinding way back, yeah, like we accept all like at the outset that a, the human being is disconnected. If you don't like that, which it sounds like the, auth the authors of this paper don't, then you have to sort of explain. I want to know a mechanism for why. And yeah. if it's just to, if it's just to punish someone by taking away their their legacy then i think it is it is you who is making too much of the legacy not them like mm -hmm. you know like why 
I guess what, you know, if I had to think about it from their perspective, it would be, well, they don't want to see people who are mean to other people be successful in life and remembered for good things. Yeah. But I think the truth is life is weird and complicated and kind of sucks sometimes. And mm-hmm. that is an uncomfortable truth that we all mm-hmm. have to live with. Mm-hmm. So that and is maybe they true. don't, maybe they don't agree with me that we have to live with it, but I mean, good luck trying to separate those things. You're, yeah. you're, you're not going to have you're not going to be successful at removing people's contributions. Like if you do that, you have to do it all the way. Yeah. And then, and then we go back to living in caves and do you really want that? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and the last paragraph I want to read so we can, we can wrap up um, here. Mm-hmm. Is, Academic scientists and educational institutions do not exist in a vacuum, but are an integral part of a greater social fabric. Training students for a given vocation is only one function of a university whose broader purpose is to define a community dedicated to the purpose, pursuit of knowledge and to, the, to personal and civic development in order to contribute to the good of society. We must therefore be aware of our responsibility to foster vigorous but respectful and reflective discourse consistent with the free and open learning ideals of university culture for all of its members, emphasized by the authors. We can and should expect excellence, yet we should not ignore or discount lived experience and perspectives that differ from the mainstream. Normative assumptions are often challenged by experiences from the margins, and some of our margins are presently being challenged by those who advocate to examine the people that we honor and the language that we use. This is not cancel culture. It is evolution and progress. As scientists, we can approach these emergent viewpoints with tolerance and respond in ways that are respectful and measured. I think we need to not be apologizing for Twitter mobs then if we want respectful and measured debate. I think we need to not be including Twitter citations in our journal articles then. Yeah. <laughs> That's no all Twitter citations, no apologies. Carry on. <laughs> no, no getting rid of an article because it's an opinion you don't like or an opinion that got people offended. I mean, I'm sorry, the editors should have stood up, stood up for the author on that one. As much as, yeah, he used some fiery and inappropriate language. I read parts of that essay too. So <laughs> there were some, some choice words yeah. that I would not have used. Yeah. I, but there, there's yeah, that. I, mean, I had that thought too. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, they're not wrong in saying that science is part of society. That's an inescapable thing. Science, scientific institutions are part of society. The better question to ask though is, what is the purpose of scientists in society? Is that, you know, the change the world mentality or is it, is it, we are the, the folks producing, well, not producing, but gathering knowledge and, and pursuing the truth and trying to provide that to society, you know, or is it the activist kind of mentality? Um, but this change this change the world stuff is really, really toxic. And I think it also is kind of making way too much of science. Like yeah. it's a job, like all the other jobs, it's a weird job. It's not a job that everyone should have. It's got some lifestyle factors that make it pretty difficult. But to, one, to of my, ha- one of my colleagues, to, but, is an ecologist, yeah. and he's noticed this recently that people seem to be treating mm-hmm. science as a religion. Yeah, they're making way too much of it. Like it's the most important thing and it's a way to have an impact. I mean, when you leave science, they make you feel like, you know, there's nothing else you could possibly do with your life that would ever be as impactful Mm -hmm. as being a researcher. They don't say that, but that is the feeling. And anyone who's ever walked away from academia has felt 
felt it. Like I'm, I'm there's sure. definitely a, like a, you know, like you can feel it with every, you know, and that's not data, right? My feelings mm-hmm. are not data. So sure. No, um, but, well, I'd but, be yeah. curious to see someone do a survey on that, to be honest. It would be interesting. Like, have you, yeah. Like, have you ever been thought of as a failure because you left your academic path and went and got a different job? Like, mm-hmm. do people see you as a failure? For sure. I've, I'm not the only person I know who has felt yeah. that. So yeah. And um, I mean, yeah. The other, the only other things I was just thinking of hitting on was the, the idea we must therefore be aware of our responsibility to foster, foster vigorous, but respectful to consistent with for all of its members. Yeah. How are you I, doing it for all of its members? If you're going to get rid of some opinions, this is where I keep coming back to the contradiction of an article like this. You, you cannot be yeah. inclusive of diverse perspectives and at the same time, get rid of diverse perspectives. Um, the yeah, because yeah, then the you have to start admitting. Quick, yeah, the only other thing real quickly, um, lived experiences, stupid. <laughs> As oh, a phrase. They talk about, I didn't even. No, no, no. It, even we, we should that. not ignore or discount lived experience and perspectives. Lived oh, experience yeah. is a stupid phrase. <laughs> because there's no experience by definition that is unlived (laughs) that's actually a funny point i like that (laughs) i hadn't thought about that um yeah it's my lived experience that i think feminism made my life worse and not better as a woman so therefore that should count but it tends not to experience that dei is a makes things worse and not better yeah i think it well yeah they did also mention like how we should think about how future generations will perceive our behavior. Like, good luck with that. If you figure out how to predict the future, how do you know that DEI is not someday going to be thought of mm-hmm. as like this horribly racist thing that a bunch of clueless white people thought of? Like, yeah. <laughs> how do you know that's not possible? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah that, so, that's the thing is we have no way of knowing the right side of history argument. We have no way of knowing what, yeah. what the future is going to think of us. Yeah, there's no, yeah, because the future is untold. It's, it is up to us. So, and they would even agree with that, I think. Yeah. So yeah, I they- guess it's, it, yeah, at, I guess on that note, I have nothing more to say about this paper. It's, I mean, I do, I have like 8,000 more. Do we want to try more. and put it on our scale? Uh, I don't know if anyone <laughs> would be surprised. I mean, from a, from a strictly like writing teacher perspective, this was a dumpster fire. I would have given this like a C plus at best because they didn't actually do academic citations. So, I mean, I don't know why journals are now doing these op-eds. I know science and nature do this because they're actually news. They have like a they news, have a news arm. component to them. Yeah. Yeah. They have a news arm and they do um, peer reviewed perspective pieces. But this, this trend, I think one of the ways that we can actually in, improve uh, the culture of science is not having this shit in the journals anymore. Like the, Hud- the Hudlicky paper shouldn't have been in a journal either. He could have written that for a news site. It would have been more appropriate. Like, well, I, I mean, commentaries have existed in journals for a long time, but this is a really poor quality for a commentary. You know? Yeah, and it... it, it I don't know why I don't. Yeah. It's a bad, I think it's an unhealthy trend, especially since honestly, when I read this, it sounded like internet arguing to me. I thought that was like the quality of, of the rhetoric was like, it sounds 
sounded like a, a more well-written, fancier version of some stuff I've seen on forums. Like it's, it, we should be doing better than that as academics. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, so, I, I, I don't disagree. I actually very yeah. much agree with that sentiment. I mean, I yeah. put it in the vein of dumpster fire, but then again, I was biased because I'm just like, yeah, you're, 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 you're promoting censorship. We're just going to go in the direction of dumpster fire because of that. But I mean, I also yeah. go in the direction of dumpster fire because of the inherent contradictions and, and the logical fallacies that are, that plague the article, really. <laughs> There's quite yeah. a lot of logical fallacies. We didn't even get into them all. Yeah, so many. And there's, I mean, this is one of those things that you, it would have to be like a 10 hour conversation, which would be better expressed in writing, uh, because then you could lay it all out evenly and organized. And, you know, I, I still am a bit of a flawed character as a podcaster, because or, oration is not one of my skills. <laughs> That's why I write for a living instead of speak. This is, this is designed so, to be conversational, so. It's very, it's very hard actually to, uh, to unpack some of these ideas efficiently because there's just so much backstory to all of them so but yeah i mean oh, i'm, I'm glad they put in the problem. notes that this is a guest commentary that are the view of the authors not the um not the journal <laughs> well i guess i guess that means the journal is possibly um open to responses so yeah. if you're an academic and you listen to our show uh, we encourage you, if you don't like what this paper has to say, or if you agree with having diversity, but you have a better idea than this on how to do it, please, please speak out, speak up. That's what free speech is, is putting your neck on the line for things you believe in, because we have a, a place, we live in a country that can't arrest you or execute you for that. So do it. Mm -hmm. That's all. Maybe yeah. a little hurtful for the career, but it's probably worth it if it's part of your values. Yeah, I think all the time what my backup plan would be if any of our podcasts ever went viral and anyone and like people attacked us for what we say on here. Um, that keeps me awake at night sometimes, not going to lie. Um, but I do believe what I say on here and I come up with backup plans all the time because I think it's important to talk about. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, maybe I'll just do glass somewhere if everything goes wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> be an artist. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's it. Yeah, I put it on the dumpster fire end of the spectrum, too. Mm -hmm. We're we're gonna have to make a point to do an article that we don't necessarily end up calling a dumpster fire at some point. Although we did, no, no, the, we were kind of fifty fifty last time. The bad the bad ones are just more fun. But actually, I think on on one hand, the the one positive about this paper was that it was very clear uh, what some of the diversity goals are, and I, it's evident that they care about the names of stuff and faculty hiring and undergraduate admissions. So that's what they're concerned about. So at least those are areas that we can all discuss and talk about how to improve the actual problems in those things, so. Yeah, definitely. So, okay, well. I think that's it. Stay curious, everybody. I stole yeah. your line. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, we hope you all enjoyed listening and we, we look to hear, we look to hear, we look to hear. We hope to hear from you about your uh, comments and your thoughts on this particular particular dumpster fire of an article, as we th we think it's a dumpster fire, but dumpster fire! Dumpster fire! <laughs> there was a politician that, that, there was a politician in Minnesota that was standing in front of a dumpster fire when they, when he was making an article. And he, was, <laughs> he was a Minnesota accent. I can't do it. I can't do it very well, but it was, it was like that dumpster fire! 
Could we have a could we have a closing graphic that's an animated dumpster just going? I may have to try that for the YouTube video. <laughs> just see what we mm-hmm. think. Um, maybe yeah. I don't know. Maybe I can like Photoshop the title of the article into the dumpster fire or something like that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, I'll try that. Well, maybe let's... it's the YouTube version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All righty, that's it, everybody. We hope you stay curious. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rogue Journal Club. If you want to suggest articles for the show, please consider becoming a supporter of shiasofia.locals.com. The link for the Locals community is available in the show notes. The Rogue Journal Club is a Shia Sophia production. Copyright 2022.